Welcome to Directly Correct, a People Likes podcast with Cole and Scott. Today's guest, Sue Lamb. Calling in from other areas, so I bought this yeah. microphone thinking it was going to be like a little teeny tiny thing, and it ended up being like, I don't even know, this is like a foot long or something, so. Oh, really? <laughs> Only wow. busted out for, you know, proper situations like this. Well, I have to say, this is not a proper situation. <laughs> Sue, <laughs> this is a... Uh... This is uh, something other than that. Um, but, uh, well, I appreciate you, you joining me today. Um, and, you know, for, for those people who are listening, you know, Scott, <laughs> Scott is not here. Um, so we're doing it just kind of, or I'm doing the podcast flying solo today, but I, I've got Sue Lamb here with me. So do you mind if I, I give you a quick intro for our guests? Yeah, go for it. For our listeners, I'm messing everything up today. Um, well, so Sue is the head of People Insight Strategy and Culture at Coca-Cola. Um, you, uh, she has uh, led a global center of excellence on org behavior and assessment in the past, working for Shell, has also worked for the American Productivity and Quality Center, uh, Psychology Beyond Borders, uh, UC Irvine and UCLA. And she holds uh, a BAs in psychology and history from UCLA and received her master's in social ecology and PhD in social and personality psychology from UCI. So, wow. <laughs> what a back. It's a lot of words. It's a lot yeah. of words. <laughs> I know what some of those words mean. So that's good. But um, I don't know. Maybe we can kind of humanize it a little bit. Um, so is there anything that you want to make sure our audience knows about you? Yeah, sure. Um, so thank you so much for having me on here today. I hope that it's like interesting for, for folks who are listening out there. And if it's not, definitely please give me that feedback. But uh, yes, um, so born and raised in uh, Southern California, went to school out there and then moved out to Texas uh, in Houston for the last 10 years. And so have been in Atlanta for about the last year, uh, year and two months or so. Um, usually what questions I get are, what the heck is social ecology and how does that have anything to do with psychology? Um, so I was uh, focused on health psychology. So looking at how we regulate our emotions and our stress and then how that impacts your physical stress responses. And there weren't that many programs in the US that were looking into that. And so I ended up going to this program at UC Irvine um, to focus on this area. And in the process of getting the PhD in this area, I had to do a master's in social ecology because that's the school that I was in. And it is one of the first, I think, few programs that are really interdisciplinary. So all students in there, we were required to do like social ecology classes. We had to take something on urban planning, on criminology. So um, the program was just really intended to be focused on interdisciplinary topics because the thinking there was you need to have a lot of different areas of knowledge in the system in order to solve like uh, creative problems. And so that's what it is in a nutshell. Well, I love this concept of being interdisciplinary. I'm curious, what do you think, just from your own experience from having this background, what do you think the unique lens that this background brings to like how you look at the world or how you do your job or like what what's kind of the interesting part of it? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think for me, at least, 
I don't know if I was drawn to the program because of the interdisciplinary nature or if it was because I learned these skills along the way, but I definitely think that um, I hold more of like a systems view of things. And so mm-hmm. um, in psychology, you know, we're very focused on the self and groups and things like that. But I'm also interested in like how your physical environment might impact your social behavior um, and other things that we might not necessarily think about when we think about psychology. And so never thought any of that information was going to be useful ever. Um, but then here we are. <laughs> With the pandemic, you know, three years into the pandemic, and we're talking about all sorts of things. We're talking about health and illness and how it impacts work. Uh, We're also talking about um, things like office configurations and how that impacts your behavior as well. So it's kind of been really great to be able to pull some of those learnings from like deep within the vault um, to target some of these questions. Well, we... Here on the podcast, we're big fans of being systems thinkers and being, you know, integrating things from multiple different perspectives. So I love that. But I kind of wanted to switch gears here a little bit back to your history, though. You moved from California to Texas now to Georgia. And Mm -hmm. you told me an interesting anecdote before. and I thought it'd be fun to share about the word y'all. So can you tell me about how that has matriculated in your life? And I don't even know if there's maybe there's a social ecology layer to the word y'all. There, there might be, uh, definitely. So as I mentioned, I'm from California. And so we used to say you guys. And so it's like, oh, you guys need to do this or uh, you guys are going to go here, et cetera. And then I moved to Texas and people told totally knew that I wasn't from Texas because every time I talked about the freeways, I would say, oh, you take the 65 to the 10 or something like that. Whereas in Texas, you would say like I-65 or something. Um, So people could tell I wasn't from Texas and I was okay with that. You know, it was fine. But then one of the things that I couldn't get myself to say was y'all. And I thought, okay, this is like just really inauthentic if I start saying it and things like that. But then a few years back, I was, I think I was in a hotel and I was there to present for a conference and I opened the door to talk to one of the uh, housekeepers and it just slipped out of my mouth. I said uh, like, oh, y'all can come back or something. And I literally, (laughs) I covered my mouth with my hands. I was so shocked. And I said, I don't, I have no idea why the heck I said that. And now ever since then, I've been saying it and I thought, well, this kind of sounds a bit Southern. I don't know about this, but you know, in, in all these conversations about like diversity, equity, and inclusion, I actually think this is like a very inclusive (laughs) way to talk about everybody because you guys sounds very masculine. Uh, Y'all is very inclusive, I think. And if we say all y'all, that's extremely inclusive, I would say. So That's um, Texas yeah. inclusive. <laughs> <laughs> it's Texas inclusive for sure. I haven't yeah. used that yet, but um, I think it's I think it's getting picked up. I think people are picking it up. I have I have seen that happening as well. Um, I have a really strange love hate relationship with the word y'all, and that's why it was <laughs> so intriguing to me. Because like, so I grew up in rural North Louisiana. Yeah. And our teachers used to beat the word y'all out of us, metaphorically speaking. Really? Yes. They said that it, it would make you sound, you know, like you were ignorant. You didn't know what you were talking about. It's not proper English. And so I've had this really weird full circle experience with the word where used it a lot early in my life, was told not to. 
So as an adult, I almost never use the word. I'll say you all, especially in emails, I'll say you all. Um, but I'll never use the word y'all. And now it's considered to be an inclusive word in some circles. And so I've seen this go and I still bristle at it just because of the scar tissue for being a kid. <laughs> and so I, I just, I, it's very confusing. I'll say that to say the least. It definitely is. And so sometimes it is, I do say you all, but sometimes it just slides together. So I'm, I'm with you on that. I do also still kind of you know, cringe a little bit, but I don't know. I still think it's very uh, inclusive. And that New York Times article, um, I think it came out about a month or two ago, has also ha shared the same sentiment. So we might be onto something. <laughs> well, say more about the article and we can include it in the show notes for those who are listening. Yeah, sure. Uh, it was just essentially an author who took the same stance about using the word y'all. So I think uh, she had much more of a similar background to you where people were using it before and then we were stopped, they were stopped um, from using it and then it came back again later in life. And so I think that people are starting to pick up that kind of sentiment as well, especially in light of using slang and things like that. I don't think any of your listeners outside of the U.S., are going to be picking it up anytime soon, but um, I don't know, mark it here. I think that it's going to gain momentum. You know, that, that's another thing where I kind of have a, a like two, um, I'm of two minds about, because sometimes our international listeners, they're like, ah, why are you always talking about stuff in the U.S.? But sometimes they, I think they actually really like the fact that it's kind of I know geocentric in the way that we talk about things. And so mm -hmm. I'm kind of of two minds about that as well. But yeah. one of the things, and I really enjoyed this in preparation for talking to you today, today, Sue, was just getting to know a little bit about, like, let's call it your idiosyncrasies. And so you were talking about this book, Snowcraft, which I had never heard of. Mm -hmm. And and so it seems like you might be a little bit of a science fictionophile or whatever the right word for that is. So can we talk about that? Because like that was really interesting to me. Yeah, sure. Um, so for those of you listening who are actually uh, really into sci-fi, I'm a total poser, um, but have been getting into it over the last few years. But uh, it started coming up because when uh, Meta started talking about the metaverse and what they were going to do to change things uh, within social media, I was like, wait, I think this is from a book. And then I had read an article online that Yes, they actually took the term metaverse from the science fiction book in the past. Um, so I think it was written uh, in the early 90s, and there's a lot of content in there that's covered that I think is kind of holding true today. So um, a lot of sci-fi, I would say, in general, talks about like current uh, social problems, but just set really, really far in the future so that you can talk a little bit more about those topics. So things like diversity, equity, and inclusion, like if you watch Star Trek or something like that, mm -hmm. they don't talk about it because everyone is included, uh, whether you're an alien or a human, right? And so I do yeah. think that there's a lot of topics that sci-fi covers that um, are really intriguing to probably people in analytics. Um, so really enjoy kind of mixing all of that in. We are so missing out on having Scott here because he is a huge Star Trek guy and I know <laughs> nothing about it, like literally nothing. <laughs> so uh, I'm sorry I can't be more helpful in this discussion. No, but no worries. Well, maybe maybe we pivot here 
to talking a little bit about people analytics. So you're leading people analytics at, at, at Coke, but you also, or is it, should I call it Coke or Coca-Cola? When I was a kid, we always called it Coke. You can totally call it Coke or Coca-Cola. Both are, both are fine. Okay. Well, so what's going on in people analytics? And then the interesting thing to me about your role is it's not just people analytics. You're, you're going into the culture space. You're going into the strategy space, even in kind of the employee or human experience space. So can you talk a little bit about how like your role, what's going on, and then what, what's kind of unique about that? Yeah, sure. Thanks for the question. So a uh, big question that I always get is why the heck do you look after all three of those areas? They seem super different from one another. Uh, so I'll give a little rundown on the three areas and then how people analytics plays into it. But um, essentially, uh, my team works on a people strategy to help us deliver on a business strategy. So we work with the HR leadership team and we work with the business strategy team on that. And usually when you're developing a new strategy and deploying it, there's always going to be gaps in the strategy. And the gaps are usually that are focused on are usually on the business strategy side, right? Like what do we need to do to sell more in this area? What might what skills and other things like that might we need to bring in um, uh, to each of the plants and things like that? So usually because there are gaps, this is where the people analytics side comes in. So. Uh, our people analytics team is really here to help us like uncover what those gaps might be or share some insights, uh, but also tell us what uh, areas are uh, opportunities for us to further leverage. So things that we're already good at and we should leverage. So uh, at Coke, as an example, um, sense of belonging is a very strong area for us. And so how might we be able to uh, look into that further to help our employees deliver uh, more effectively? So the people analytics space plays a lot in, in the strategy work. And then usually because the people analytics work uh, identifies gaps or opportunities for improvement, this is where the culture and human experience space comes in. So um, our culture folks actually take the information that's uh, coming out of those mixed methods research. Uh, so we do quantitative and qualitative research, and then we apply it both in HR and then in the business. Um, so we work with the centers of excellence uh, to change policies, procedures, um, and uh, processes to help us deliver on those insights. But we might also do projects like with our business units and the local culture folks there um, to make changes. Um, so as an example, um, we know that we want to reward certain behaviors uh, as we're making a culture change. And so we have uh, included some of that into the content and leadership development. So we shared the insights with leadership development, and then they embed that work in. Uh, we also talked to Total Reward, and then they're the ones uh, coming up with those like policies related to how uh, bonuses are given out. And so we share the insights from our work as well there, and they can include it. And then this information is also shared with our HR business partners so that they can coach their business leaders as they're um, you know, giving promotions and uh, rewarding performance and things like that. So it all sounds very different, but I promise you it works well together. My goodness, <laughs> that that is a lot, and uh, I don't know how you manage it all, frankly. Uh, I but, don't. Um, uh, that's why the, the team is there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But do you mind if I come back to one thing that you were talking about that I think we've touched on briefly on the podcast in the past? But having someone with your background, because I find that 
social psychology researchers are steeped in this area more than most uh, psychologists or just generalized people there in the data sphere, which is mixed methods research. Can you can you talk about examples like maybe how your background has has gotten you or your teams ready to do that type of research and what's the value of combining things like qualitative and quantitative data together? Yeah, sure. So I, this is going to date me. So I did some qualitative slash quantitative research way back in the day when we had to hand code <laughs> uh, sentences um, uh, in some computer software. I think at the time it was called like QS or N6. It was like new to six or something uh, was the software. This is seriously dating me. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think anyone uses it anymore. Um, but we at the time were, were doing work with people who had breast cancer. And so we were mm -hmm. trying to see whether different ways of um, doing expressive writing could actually help them manage their symptoms. And so we randomly assigned people to write about different topics and found that certain topics actually did help people be more resilient with their cancer treatment. And so that is where it kind of started. But since I knew that writing and qualitative research could be helpful for things like, I mean, related to your health, it just kind of started coming through other work that I'd done as well. So doing things like daily diary studies um, was something that also came up using qualitative research too. So um, my team currently, we have some folks who are very quantitative heavy, and then we have some folks who have done quantitative and qualitative research. Um, I think the folks who have done qualitative research have been more uh, working on like job analyses or have done some consulting uh, with other companies in the past. And so you don't really think about those skills and how you might use them later in life, uh, but it's definitely served, I think, the team very well. I want to come back to another thing, um, and I know in preparation for the podcast, we talked about this too, which is the use of data in building a people strategy, right? Mm -hmm. And I think this is actually really, really relevant at this moment with all the context of like what's going on with layoffs, uh, potential recession, all of this. And I feel like the teams, the people analytics teams that are out there that are really holding their own have a really strong linkage to strategy. And then the people analytics teams that, you know, aren't seem to be because of that lack of that linkage there. And so can you talk about how much having a linkage to strategy and the, how you guys use data to link towards that? Sure, sure. So maybe I can share some context uh, for this before I go into it, but Coke uh, used to be a very decentralized kind of a company. So we're in pretty much every single country except for North Korea, Cuba, and Russia. And so we used to be very decentralized so that we could deliver very quickly. Um, but because of that, things were very like hierarchical, they were command and control. Um, and so you can move very quickly like that in your different countries. Um, fast forward to two years ago, we had a really big reorganization. And this is where we uh, combine multiple business units into fewer operating units. And um, that required a lot of different ways of working. So no longer could you just be completely hierarchical and make decisions that way. Things were a lot flatter, more distributed. 
decision-making needed to like happen uh, where the work was going on. And so I think because of this reorganization and this big cultural shift that was needed, this is where there was much more focus on people analytics and people data because people were asking us questions like, how do we know that we're actually making improvements on our culture? Are we moving forward with this new way of working? Um, different things like that. So there's been a lot of questions from our senior leaders and the strategy team on that um, leadership behaviors, engagement, um, and different topics related to that. So actually employee listening is a big way that we've stayed connected to the strategy. So what is what does employee listening mean? Because I, I find that other people, you know, sometimes it's just another word for saying surveys, or is it is it surveys plus something else? Like what what does employee listening mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we do a lot of surveying. So we do surveying from hire to retire as well. And so we do a lot of work in that space, but uh, it also includes that qualitative research I was talking about. Uh, so we typically will do um, focus groups and structured interviews with uh, people in the company, but also senior leaders who are also experiencing the changes. And then we'll collate themes to understand like more detailed information, I guess, about the uh, different areas um, that we're looking into. So as an example, um, operational effectiveness, I think like every big company uh, struggles with this, but we will talk to people to get details about what is it that's holding up operational effectiveness. And you just can't really get that from a survey. Um, but when you talk to somebody, they'll list out like the 10 different processes they have to go to <laughs> um, to get like a purchase order or something. And it's yeah, very that's clear. craziness. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of how we um, do employee listening. We also want to try to do things that are more, um, I guess, I don't know what you call it, like ambient listening or something, but just things where you're not asking people to input into it. Um, are you guys doing any of that right now? Uh, yeah, well, my firm actually specializes in, in employee listening. However, we're really kind of heavy on the survey component right now, we're leaning into the culture space using NLP, but, mm -hmm. and, and I don't know if this ambient is the right word, but I would say looking into external data sources about organizations so that you can identify an organization's culture before perhaps you even join, which mm -hmm. I think is a really oh. interesting use case in people analytics currently. Yeah, that's so interesting. Are you finding um, your customers using your tools for some like specific topics or is it all over the place? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, usually the way we structure things on the surveying front is we, we take a pretty prescriptive approach in science and research from academic constructs that hit, hit employees at key touch points. So somebody is hired, somebody gets promoted, somebody hasn't been promoted in a while, you know, mm -hmm. when somebody exits the organization, generalize things like the research constructs of engagement rather than like the branding of engagement, which I think we've all seen. Um, but yeah, I think we take a really scientific, but also helpful uh, in terms of democratizing it to the people who need the data when they need it so that mm -hmm. they can take action. Because one, one of my biggest complaints, and I've kind of been on a soapbox about this recently, is people doing surveys and then not doing anything with the data. Like, I find that personally offensive 
uh, when, when people are asking me for feedback and they said, great, your feedback is going into a weather report that's just going to tell us what the temperature was today. I'm like, no, I don't want to know what the temperature was today. I want you to fix the temperature with a thermostat. Like, mm -hmm. and so <laughs> like, I don't know, I, I just, I get kind of frustrated about this sometimes when I see people essentially just using surveys as a data collection mechanism rather mm -hmm. than a way of improving employee experiences. I love that you said all of those things and I will die on that hill with you too. <laughs> so I, I definitely think employees get very upset or irritated that they gave feedback and then it looks like people didn't do anything with it. So I always advocate for people to share with employees like what you're doing, even if it's like behind closed doors. I don't recommend that you do it behind closed doors. Um, you know, you should have it as transparent as possible. But even if somebody gave feedback, um, like something about, I don't know, a recipe on a chicken soup or something like that, maybe we can't do anything with that feedback because we didn't change the recipe on that chicken soup. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's good to just like circle back with that per or not that person because it's anonymous, but with your team to say, hey, we heard these, this piece of feedback. We didn't do anything for this reason. Um, so even yeah. that act of circling back would be useful. Oh, yeah, it becomes a feedback loop. And we all know mm -hmm. like what a feedback loop and like that's what it's supposed to be in mm -hmm. uh, like not a one, one unidirectional survey. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I do want to pivot here a little bit, Sue, because I know you've done some service work, especially with some Asian American organizations, and you've been doing some mentoring in your career. One of the things that I like to do on the podcast is just, make sure that, you know, we all know how people are giving back because I feel like that's a special part of our field is I know some fields, it doesn't seem like it's just kind of like unhuman where they're not really doing anything to help out, you know, the other people in the field. But I feel like people analytics has a really strong reputation for giving back. And so I wanted to make sure um, that you had a chance to talk about that. Yeah, sure. Thanks for asking. So I am involved with two organizations right now. Uh, the first is called Ascend, and it's a pan-Asian group for business professionals to network, um, but to also uh, help with policy and other things like that. So that's one. Um, the other is called NACA. It's the National Association for Chinese Americans. And so I act as a mentor for people who are early career folks. Um, I'm actually going tomorrow uh, to a mentoring session. So we have about 50 people and we have others from like Deloitte who are coming to help mentor um, people who are very early career, you know, early 20s, very bright eyed and bushy tailed. Uh, but typically for these organizations, I usually will spend time mentoring folks or doing panels um, and having conversations with people. Um, the thing that I'm uncomfortable about, but apparently it's helpful, is telling my own story, like my personal story of how I got here. Um, yeah. I grew up very, very poor. My family, um, they immigrated to the U.S. I'm the first person to go to high school to college to graduate school um, in my family. And so it was actually helping or sharing that journey that helped people. So people have come up to me to say, oh, thank you for sharing that you're not like the model minority, <laughs> um, you know, and uh, you're, you're still doing okay. 
Uh, it really, um, that actually meant a lot to me to be able to hear that, but I am uncomfortable a little bit about sharing those types of things, but I'm getting used to it. Yeah, it feels, it feels weird when you're kind of like setting yourself out there and like, and even from like a scientific standpoint, you're like, I know that I'm one data point, but is a data point an anecdote or is it something generalizable to everybody else, you know? Oh, totally. Because I'm like, well, maybe this is just my experience and it has nothing to do with others, but it is nice for folks to then just share their stories with you. Like I found that actually the most rewarding that other people who felt a bit more marginalized felt like they could share about themselves and that they were seen and heard. So I definitely think um, I'm giving back to the community, but I'm also getting a lot back as well. Uh, what about well, you? I know you're doing the podcast and everything, but I imagine you're doing lots of other things too. Yeah, I've, uh, my goodness. Um, well, a while <laughs> back, we, we, we've talked about this on the podcast before, but I made this mistake where I sent out a link to do free mentoring on LinkedIn and uh -oh. I just got bombarded with, with people <laughs> doing mentoring. So I think I mentored somewhere between 35 and 40 people in like a oh month. Oh my gosh. Which was, I got a lot of reps in, that's for sure. And I made a lot of really great connections. And, mm -hmm. and I, I also lead um, Orgnostics People Analytics Community called The Lounge. It has over 700 people analytics people in there. And so we're always mm -hmm. having conversations and events. And I, that's really rewarding for me. I've enjoyed the heck out of that. But mm -hmm. I, I am curious, just because I know you've done a little mentoring yourself, for the early career individuals, well, and let me let me kind of contextualize this for a second. So I know, and you were you were talking a second ago, like it feels uncomfortable, and and you didn't use this word, but I would say the word is, is to be kind of that vulnerable, especially in a public setting. And I know I think it's Brene Brown who's done a lot of research into vulnerability and as a way of like establishing rapport and establishing trust and just you know basically being a good human being too. Um, but I, I'm wondering. Like, is there any advice that you always give to early career individuals that you think they, that they find helpful and are they will, more willing to be open with you because of that vulnerability aspect? Yes. Uh, the short answer is yes, I think so. Um, when I was in my 20s, I was like trying to be a robot, you know, wear my business casual clothes, like sound very professional, don't use certain words like y'all, um, and just show up a certain way. Not nice uh, callback on the y'all there. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> but, you know, just really showing up how I thought other people wanted me to show up. And so I was definitely really stiff, um, but I had gotten some feedback. I took this like public speaking course. And they were saying, you know, you don't need to show up in a way that is very robotic. You know, you can let a little bit of your own personality shine. And in my head, I didn't say this, but in my head, I was like, well, that's easy for you to say. <laughs> um, a little bit harder yeah. for a female minority who has no idea what they're doing here. Um, but very recently, I started doing some more like career mapping workshops. And as part of the workshops, I share my career journey. And then people spend time writing in their career journey to help them think about what their next steps might need to be. And as part of that workshop, I also share like personal difficulties that I've gone through. And one of the things that I have shared, and I've literally cried every single time I've talked about this, except for maybe we don't, we don't have to twice. talk about it right now if you don't want to. I know. No, I think I, I'm feeling I'm feeling strong, Cole. 
Um, but I tell young people that one of the biggest mistakes in my career is when my dad had terminal cancer. I was working throughout pretty much the last few days of his being alive. And I was in the hospital, like literally doing work in the next room. And so I tell everyone this story. I cry because I'm very not happy with myself still. And I think that actually people shared like, thank you for sharing that and for being vulnerable and for helping me to feel like I can you know, uh, focus on my well-being and my family as well. And I've gotten feedback that people really liked it and it seemed to make me a more credible leader, which was so shocking to me because I was like, I literally cried in front of 40 people, you know, ugly crying too. So it was very interesting, but um, it seemed to help the message land better, if that makes sense. It's very odd to me, but good. I want to know, like, I don't know where I came across this, but I feel like it might be like in the social psychology research somewhere. It's like humans hear things in terms of stories and narratives, not in terms of data and facts. And so I bet you that there's something there with how you've shared the story that really almost like I like I call like skipping short term memory loss and goes automatically into long term memory. It's just like you've you've given people, you know, some honey to make the the medicine go down easy or something like that. Yeah, I really wonder um, about that, but definitely the storytelling really helps them that stick a lot more. I don't know about you, but for people analytics, like it's easier for me to influence people with like data and facts and logic. And I Mm -hmm. always default to thinking that people are also (laughs) influenced by those things. But I think most folks in the business will lead with like the heart versus the mind. And so I think in people analytics, we might be a bit more successful in influencing our stakeholders if we focus a little bit more on the the heart part. I don't know if this was on purpose or not, Sue, but you were teeing up my next question perfectly. Awesome. (laughs) Totally, we totally seeded all of this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I, I recently published this article on the three cities problem which actually the genesis of that came from a conversation that Scott and I had on the podcast with our guest, Amber West. And they Mm -hmm. totally like spiked the ball on me. (laughs) I threw out this idea and they're like, oh, that's dumb. Don't talk about that. And so I kind of sat on it for a while and then eventually ended up writing the article. And just to explain it for those in the people in the audience who haven't read it yet, um, and we'll include a link in the show notes, but it's basically this concept of combining the three historical cities uh, that serve as metaphors, with Jerusalem serving as a metaphor for, you know, um, religion or faith, um, Athens serving as the metaphor for reason and science, and then the new one that's added in, because those two, you know, cities have been at war for thousands of years, um, metaphorically speaking, obviously, but adding a new one in more recently, which is Silicon Valley, and it's standing in for utility and maximizing of value and things like that. And so you're bringing up, you know, starting with the heart. Well, I would say that's squarely in Jerusalem of starting with how are you convincing people to do something, starting with faith, and then knowing that, uh, you know, scientists that we both are, that Athens is probably where we typically play in terms of science, data, reason, facts. and then. What role does utility even play? And 
And so I wanted to tee you up in this sense, because I know you put some comments on that article about you finding it surprising that you thought that utility, I can't remember exactly what you said, but like maybe that, that we felt like our field was underutilizing utility. I, I don't know. Do you have any comments there, Sue? Yeah. So I was actually pretty surprised to hear that utility was one of the last things that we as a field look into because we pretty much only have jobs uh, because the people see some utility in our work. So I was actually very surprised about that um, in particular. And I thought that maybe perhaps it's my hypothesis, perhaps we don't focus so much on utility because we are all coming from like probably most of us are IO psychologists or some psychologists or data scientists of some sort. So we probably come from like a logic and reasoning background and we're obviously all human. So maybe that faith and that heart part comes in after that. And so we probably don't focus as much on the utility part as the business does. But in order for us to actually make like maximal impact on folks, we really do need to focus on the utility. Um, an old colleague of mine, um, Thomas Rasmussen, like he always told us, follow the money in people analytics, because if you can follow the money and solve those problems, you will be very, very useful to the business. And then you'll be able to pursue other interesting topics that might be a little bit more risky and may not have the same maximum return on investment. You know, I, I love that too, because I think, especially people with masters and PhDs, and this is kind of the point you're making, I think we have an over-reliance on the science pillar. Mm -hmm. and, and so we just think, oh, the science said this, therefore doing something about it is self-evident, mm -hmm. but it's not self-evident to most leaders. Mm -hmm. Leaders are very much more in the utility vein and they could stand mm -hmm. to use some of the science that we bring in. However, and this is where the third pillar comes in, they don't have the faith in us that we're doing the right things. They're not gonna listen to anything that we say. And so I think it's really important to see people analytics kind of as that tripod of having the balance amongst all three pillars. I 100% agree with you on that. It definitely needs to be evenly balanced across those three areas. Sometimes, depending on which business leader you're talking to, you might need to dial something up or dial something down. So like when I talk to finance, I'm all about logic and numbers and we all get each other on that. Um, but if I'm talking to a business leader and maybe perhaps they have other goals in mind that even aren't related to utility, you know, maybe they're concerned about doing something because it might uh, impact their team negatively. That's where we kind of need to have that faith and that heart part um, into people analytics, because if we're telling a recruiting function, you're going to have to change all of these processes because our data said so. That business leader might be saying, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, I have 200 people in my recruiting function. I can't just change these processes so easily. So I think we do have to think about our customers and what they might have to do, uh, what they're motivated by and what other things they might, you know, need to keep an eye on. It's not always about the science or only about it. You're good people, Sue. I knew it before you joined, but I feel it even more now. So I'm glad you're here. <laughs> well, you. maybe, I mean, kind of since Scott's here, I don't know how this is going to work, but this is an experiment. Usually okay. this is a segment of the podcast where we go into the nerdery. Mm -hmm. um, but since it's just you and I, 
we can just keep talking kind of the way that we were if you want to. Mm-hmm. Um, but the first thing I wanted to bring up in the nerdery was my, well, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll actually tee it to you. And then I'd like to come back to my definition of what I think culture is. And I know you're leading culture um, as a part of your role at Coke, but what, what's your definition of culture and, and how do you think about it in the wor- in, in, at work? Yeah, so um, no culture psychologists come for me and kill me because I'm going to say this. <laughs> That's why I let you answer first. I know. <laughs> um, so we define it as everything that we do in order to get work done inside the company. And so it could be anything from narratives to processes to symbols and other things like that, behaviors. And so I define it pretty broadly like that. And then depending on what we need to act on, it really is just dependent on the company or the department or business unit. And so I define it super broadly. And that's probably a very terrible operational definition, but I'm going to need to lean a little bit on Jerusalem on that. No, no, that's perfect. And I actually kind of like it because there's this whole academic debate about is it climate? Is it culture? What is it? How do you measure it? And, and so the, the way I've come down on it kind of as an analytics professional is things that are challenging or impossible to measure. I find it really difficult to action. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I've tried to break down culture into three behavioral components that are measurable. Mm-hmm. And the first, and I, I have kind of like an interesting anecdote about each one that I think you might find funny. Mm-hmm. Um, the first is symbols. So mm-hmm. culture as symbols. So when you walk into a company, what are the symbols that you see and how do you know what it's like to work there? And I, when I was early in my career, I had a mentor give me some advice. I don't know if this is good advice, but it's pretty funny. <laughs> he said, if you're ever interviewing for a job, and this is going to tell you a little bit about, I grew up in North Louisiana. So keep that in mind. <clears throat> he said, make sure one thing that you do is you go into the restroom. Mm-hmm. and try out the toilet paper because if what? the toilet paper is bad that means that the company doesn't care about their employees and they're not going to care about you right oh my gosh that's hilarious and then the second thing he said is he said go in the parking lot and i think you could probably empathize with this to a certain extent he said go in the parking lot and see if there's any reserved parking places because if there are reserved parking places, that means there's an old boys club and you're never going to be a part of the club. And so I was like, wow. And, and I thought about that from like a culture as symbols point of view. It's like these are very symbolic things that say something important about the culture of working at that place. Totally. So I'll, pa- I'll pause there before I go on. Any thoughts about that random <laughs> stuff? Yeah, I, I love that uh, story. So I'm not sure about the toilet paper part, um, but <laughs> I definitely agree with the parking part. Um, and that's something that we are trying to manage as well. So um, as an example, the company, again, used to be very hierarchical. And depending on what your job grade was, that dictated like where you sat in the office uh, when everybody was yep. coming into the office. and so. After the pandemic and people returning to the office, we were like, nobody has assigned seating, uh, nobody has offices, and everyone is equal here. And so it is, I do agree, those types of symbols really send a big message to people on how we should be acting and behaving. 
Um, I think when one of the first biggest symbols, I think, at Coke, uh, when James Quincy became our CEO was he went into the cafeteria wearing jeans and he ate the cafeteria food and sat where everybody else sat. And I think everyone was just shocked, like, oh my gosh, our CEO is wearing a backpack and is just walking around amongst, amongst us. He's one of us. And so I do think those types of symbols send really strong cultural messages. Absolutely. I could not agree more. And I think that kind of leads because all three of these definitions are somewhat overlapping too, because I feel like this is this is related to the second one, which is character. And I, I kind of use character as, you know, the definite the colloquial definition is, you know, what you do when nobody's looking. Mm-hmm. And I, I these are kind of like sort of negatively skewed in the sense that I think about like character is like, are you gonna lie? Are you gonna cheat? Are you gonna steal? Are you going to be the person who never eats in the employee cafeteria because you're better than them? You know, like, like power differentials, all that, like, what is what you do when no one's looking and how does that reflect on the employee's culture and kind of setting the tone of what's going on in the organization? I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about that one as well? Yeah. I mean, I definitely think that what you do when no one's working impacts your visible behaviors. Cause I mean, you can't uh, you can't go and never work out and then go to somebody that you're dating and say, oh, my gosh, yeah, I like run marathons and stuff. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, what you do privately definitely impacts your behaviors um, publicly as well. And so it's just easier to bring your whole self to things, whether it's work or relationships or um, other situations, because then you're consistent. You're well more consistent throughout, but obviously you do dial things up and down depending on what situation you're in. Um, I swear a lot in my personal life. Um, My husband gives me a lot of crap about it, (laughs) Uh, but I got to dial it down when I'm in the office, right? Or when I'm meeting with new people. So I definitely think we can dial up and dial things down. Well, I will say this, this is a swearing friendly or at least a swearing okay podcast. So if you want to drop some bombs, feel free. Um, okay. But the and that says something about your characters too. Just saying. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I hope it's a good thing. No. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the last pillar is, is about, um, and this is kind of in the policies and procedures element of culture, which is what are you willing to tolerate? And what I mean, uh, and so the story I have on this one is related to when I was in graduate school, I was working with a company who was expanding operations into Africa and they were having lots and lots of safety issues. So it's more of like a manufacturing type organization. And uh, one of the things that ha- that you would see people not wearing safety helmets, not wearing the proper shoes that, you know, in, in the working environment and, and it was very unsafe. And there were, because there, as a consequence, there were lots of accidents and unneeded type of safety incident. And what, uh, there was kind of this apocryphal story of a new leader who came into the organization and they were getting in one of like they were doing a tour of different sites and locations throughout the continent. And they were getting in one of the, you know, those big vans that have mm-hmm. like multiple rows of seating behind them. Mm-hmm. And so all of the leaders who were touring, going from one site to another, were getting into a van and the the new leader clicked their seatbelt um, shut and he listened for all of the other leaders who clicked their seatbelt, and he only heard a few clicks of the seatbelt. And so he said, can, everybody who's in the van, can you raise your hand if you haven't clicked your seatbelt shut? 
And the people who did, he said, I, you're now let go from this organization because we take safety very, very seriously. Oh and so, my again, gosh. I don't know if it was actually a true story, but it was kind of like, again, an apocryphal story to say, how do you change a culture from saying, what are we willing to tolerate now to what we're not willing to tolerate? And so I thought that was an interesting way of going about, it. I probably wouldn't do it that way, but it's like, if you're trying to make a big cultural shift, and I don't even know, I mean, I, I just, just went off in my head about like all this stuff that's going on with Elon Musk and Twitter right now. I mean, he's try, clearly trying to make a big cultural shift at the organization. I think it's very controversial the way he's going about doing it. But I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about like what you're willing to tolerate as a part of culture? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think any culture change is a change management journey. So that is such an interesting story that you shared about the seatbelts, because I would probably say I understand the sentiment there, but maybe we should warn people before we do sure. that. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, help with the change management a bit. But I do agree, like, if our senior leaders and executives are saying one thing and then doing another, then what, what, what do we expect employees to do? Are we going to do what they say? Or are we going to do what they do? And so um, I don't have human children, um, but I'm assuming like you, with you have children, you probably want to role model things <laughs> that you want them to do. <laughs> I don't know if you have kids or not. But <laughs> well, you can't, you can't just leave us there and say something like, I don't have human children. Like what oh. kind of children do you have, Sue? <laughs> Oh, okay. Yeah, that's really funny. Um, so I have two dogs that I basically uh, treat as children. So they're literally at daycare right now so that they oh don't bark and stuff while I'm on these calls. So <laughs> that's what I meant. Um, but yeah. same thing with them. You know, I can't tell them to sit. <laughs> you know, I kind of have to teach them this is what it means to sit. And every single time you do it, you know, you get rewarded or other things like that. So, I mean, in the same vein, we kind of need to do that with people and employees as well, right? We got to teach them and share with them what it is that we're expecting. Um, and then they have to do it, but we also have to do it as well. So um, it's that role modeling piece that's important. Absolutely. Well, I couldn't say that better. I'm wondering, maybe we pivot to the, to the next um, topic in the nerdery, which is Patrick Coolin's new article that came out about the second wall people analytics and so we'll we'll include a link in the show notes for those who haven't read it but the thesis is this is you know for the first um i don't know few years of people analytics uh everything was about moving from descriptive analytics to predictive right and that's the crossing of the first wall but what we're really seeing lately is this moving from the, the, sec, the first wall to the second wall of people analytics, which he's saying is moving from advanced or predictive analytics to deployed analytics. So a predictive project could just be a project and then the project ends and you're done. But when you deploy analytics, these are things that are always running in the background. They're based in models. Usually you have to productionalize things or maybe you're using third-party vendors. And I'm wondering, are you seeing this kind of first wall, second wall phenomena in your work, Sue, at Coca-Cola? Yeah, so at Coke, we are still on the journey, probably, I would say, from the first wall to the second wall. And mm -hmm. uh, as we go towards the second wall, we will probably be using uh, mostly vendors. 
Uh, we do have an internal data science team um, and we can work with them. So they do build models and deploy them inside the organization. Um, they're focused very heavily on areas like finance and marketing and things like that uh, first, um, but it's primarily because we need to um, show the value of those models inside the organization. And then I think also, uh, I don't know how it is in your organization, but I don't think we have enough data um, in most of our areas to be able to deploy these models and have them running on its own. Um, I don't know, what, what do you think about that? I understand um, what Patrick is saying there, yeah. but I wonder, do we have enough data in most companies or what do you think? Well, I think this actually goes back to the strategy component because I think a lot of times people analytics just tries to focus on the data that happens to be lying around, mm -hmm. right? But what I've seen in organizations, if something's really, really important to strategy and to business execution, we're going to create data collection mechanisms to ensure we have data, even if it isn't just lying around. Mm -hmm. And so I think that getting the strategy right is upstream of moving, crossing the first wall and that second wall. And another thing, just because you had mentioned you were going with vendors, he, he points out in this article, without a clear model strategy and gatekeeper role, an organization might end up with a vendor for every single use case. And that's not ideal either. And so if you're going to work with vendors, it's good to have you know a single vendor that can do multiple things rather than one vendor who can do one thing really well, and then you have to have 20 of them. Uh, 100% agree with that. Um, so our HRIS is Workday. And so typically when we are uh, pulling in vendors, I recommend to the team, like, can we get something that integrates with things that we already have <laughs> um, just to help uh, that in a little bit. And the other thing is if anyone has actually done work with multiple vendors and has had to manage those vendors, like, you know, firsthand, I mean, having more than a few vendors, it just basically takes up all your time managing them. And so um, fully agree that having a few vendors that can do multiple things, that is really helpful, especially like in the assessment space. But yeah. uh, the difficulty there is like finding a vendor that is able to do that, but is still like nimble enough and agile enough to be able to um, fulfill some of the idiosyncrasies um, and requirements in these large companies. Well, it's interesting, interesting you say that because I think both you and I know his episode's not out yet, but we've already recorded with Richard Rosenau, and we talked a little bit about this last week too, which is it seems like Patrick sort of advocates for the build strategy of mm -hmm. having to do all this in-house. But to me, that does seems fundamentally unscalable. And this is basically what Richard said last week. It, and it, I'm, I think it's got to be the buy strategy. If you're really going to just scale and, or scale and deploy analytics at scale, you've got to have, you know, people that can be that force multiplier because you don't need a 50 person or a hundred person or a 150 person people analytics team when you could have, you know, I don't know how big your team is at Coca-Cola, but, you know, a 15 or 20 person team and a few really good technologies that can make you guys go to the moon, you know? Yeah, we're not that big. And I think it's because we are probably more so on the buy side as well um, yep. for not just people analytics, but other parts of the business as well, because 
We don't know what the future holds um, for technology and analytics. And so um, it's easier for us to go with vendors that specialize in a certain space and they are doing all the research and the heavy lifting in terms of uh, coming up with new things there. And then we're able to leverage that much more quickly. I know that some companies, they build quite a bit of what they're doing. I mean, I would love to do that, but in terms of like cost and time and resources, um, it's probably not feasible for a lot of companies. Well, I think it's fine when you're crossing the first wall, like mm -hmm. build is totally fine. But as yes. more and more companies are trying to cross that second wall of people analytics, I just don't think it makes sense anymore. It, mm -hmm. It's like the example I use is imagine you had to build Microsoft Excel on your team before you could do your first analysis. It's like, no, go buy Microsoft Excel. Geez, why would you do that? You know? And so I think that is the role that when you're crossing that second wall that a lot of companies are going to be thinking about. And we have had conversations like with our head of data science, um, her name's Sylvia Ochoa. And so we've talked about, oh, maybe we can have a dedicated resource in the data science team that focuses primarily on HR. Um, mm -hmm. So in our team, we mostly have IO psychologists um, on the team. So they have an IO psychology background, but they have statistics as like one of the tools like in their tool belt, but they're not doing like you know, hardcore machine learning type of work. And so it just doesn't make sense um, for our team to be uh, staffing up like that. And so we've talked a little bit about uh, doing a little bit of building internally, but I think eventually it would be, those folks would probably be helping us like vet technologies that we buy and just to make sure that the technology is doing what it actually does and isn't doing something completely crazy or illegal. Absolutely. Uh, the legality part is a key crucial component nowadays, too, especially with all the mm -hmm. legislation regulations that are going on. But totally. you, you kind of brought up one thing there. Uh, one of the questions I know you sent me uh, before the podcast is, has there been any similarities yeah. amongst the episodes that we've had? And I'd say there's really two. One is we've had on way too many IO psychologists. <laughs> and I know Scott and I are both, both IO psychologists, and I love IO psychologists to death, but goodness gracious, I think we have overrepresented ourselves in that way. And so mm -hmm. I'm glad that you have a different background. But the other is we've talked a whole lot about remote work, return to office, hybrid mm -hmm. work, and I'm kind of tired of talking about that at this point. So thank goodness Same. it hasn't come up on this episode. Um, <laughs> but I don't know, maybe we can pivot to the last thing I wanted to talk about today. And I've mentioned it on our last two episodes, but I'm going to bring it up one more time, which is the concept of this norm core conference mm -hmm. of doing a conference that's only focused on the nuts and bolts of people analytics, like how to do some basic things, not a huge strategy, not a big sales pitch, not a vendor pitch, nuts and bolts. So I don't know. Are you are you down with the idea, Sue? What do you think about a norm core conference? I am totally down with this concept. Um, so I was talking to somebody else about this and I was laughing um, about your article because like my life ethos is norm core. So you can't really like see what I'm wearing and stuff, yes, but like I my love clothes, it. like <laughs> everything I'm being very, very norm core here. So I think that it would be great. And I actually think it would be useful for people who are people analytics practitioners, but also people who are trying to learn um, from people analytics as well, I get a lot of HR people who come in and they're like, I really want to be able to do this, but I have no idea where to start. And I have like one resource. 
what the heck am I supposed to do here? And how can I start to do some of this work to show value to the business so that I can actually staff up? So I actually think it'd be useful for practitioners, but then also HR people who might be, you know, um, analytically minded and want to do this. Because I really think that we all have these questions. We just don't raise them because they're not like hot and sexy and the most interesting topic right off the top of our heads. Yeah. Well, I'm actually thinking pretty seriously about putting this together and getting a partner potentially to do it. And one of the things, it may already be out by the time we launch this episode, but I'm thinking about putting a, a market survey together and mm -hmm. try to have some fun with the survey too, because I want to ask some yes. funny questions. Um, mm -hmm. But one of the things I'm thinking about is, is it virtual or is it in person? And I, I don't know, I want to throw it to you because there's vastly different considerations if you go virtual versus in person. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on that, too? Yeah, that is a tough one. Um, I am biased because it is hard for me to pay attention for a long time on virtual conferences. Me too. But if, <laughs> if I'm in person, I can pay attention for a much longer period of time. And I also feel like networking is a really big part of the learning for me. So yep. although I think it's more efficient um, to do virtual, I think in person is more effective. And so uh, maybe hybrid, <laughs> maybe yeah. this is a cop out. Well, and the thing is, I don't know how you would do a hybrid, honestly. I know. Um, you have to get, if people are already there, why make them do something hybrid? Yeah. You know, um, but uh, the, the actual norm core conference that I'm basing this on ended up being virtual. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know what the real attendance was because I didn't actually go. Uh, but the the trade-off to me is you have to make a it, it's, it becomes much more expensive for mm -hmm. people to go and it's much more difficult to democratize if it's in person but mm -hmm. i'm leaning towards in person just because of the fidelity of the experience so mm -hmm. i don't know i'm gonna see what the survey says and and see what the, what the audience members want um in terms yeah. of the cost structure and everything but yeah, so this has data. been freaking great i've enjoyed the heck out of this i don't know if you Same. have but I, You're always... I didn't cry quite yet, but I was thinking about crying at times. And so, you know, <laughs> we maybe we can make that happen if we have you on again. OK, yeah, sounds good. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. Awesome. Well, you've been listening to Direction Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Cole and not Scott today. Thank you so much for joining us, Sue. You were the best. Thank you. As always, all opinions are our own and do not reflect those of any other organization.